cracking open a tall one. Cracking open a tall one with the girls. That is the Ronettes. Hi, and welcome to Anne Introducing, a podcast about artists in their own words, which is a fancy way of saying one of us reads an artist's memoir and tells the other one about it. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing on lead vocals, Miss Ronnie Spector. Ronnie Spector was the iconic lead singer of original pop rock girl group The Ronettes, who released a string of mega hits in the early 60s. And uh, though Ronnie's many attempts at post-Ronettes hits were mostly fruitless, her career and personality were a lasting influence for many female rock stars to come. And her disastrous marriage to producer Phil Spector became the stuff of rock legend. That was delivered very 60s rock DJ, which is relevant. Coming up next, the new 45 from yours and my favorite, those sweet girls from New York. I'm talking about (laughs) the Ronettes. Nice. Do you also host a a variety show called the the Wade Hour? I hosted a uh, 2 a.m. freeform radio show on WNUR 89.3 Evanston, Chicago called the Don't Diss on Gandhi Radio Hour. Well, that's basically the same thing. Uh, we're going to talk about Ronnie Spector. What do you know about Ronnie Spector? Uh, other than that, uh, her songs were among those I could play at the jukebox at a Johnny Rockets. Uh, not much. You make the waitresses dance and they hate you. <laughs> yes. I mean, God forbid I would ever make the waitress at any kind of service institution play, uh, or dance or like do the thing that they have to do at Coldstone when it's your birthday or if you tip them or anything. I find that and have since I was a kid, extremely humiliating. I mean, if you do the thing, then they, they're they going to do it. It's not about your desires. It's about the the grinding wheel of, of entertainment capitalism. Yeah, it's I have no choice in the matter. By engaging at all in consumer society, I have forced us into a degrading cycle of debasement for cash, so I might as well just let them sing while they hand me my Snickers-filled vanilla cup. Mmm. Don't they? Well, they sing when you tip, right? Yes. At Cold Stone. So it's like, I mean, which are you going to do? Stiff them or make them sing? Yeah, exactly. So this for- is the world we, this is the world liberals want. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically turning your, uh, your actual employees into buskers. Yes. Aren't we all though? Yes. At the end of the day. Um, just busking for love. So transitioning from capitalist debasement of which I'm, uh, extra ironically, displeased today having just lost a job of a podcast producer at a real place so i've got a podcast extra hard today to make it up pod hard baby pod hard pod like your life depends on it pod fast pod furious <laughs> the pod and the podcasterous the pod of the podcasterous uh so let's uh let's get into ronnie first of all what is the name of this memoir that we're drawing from this is memoir is called be my baby how I Survived Mascara, Miniskirts, and Madness, or My Life as a Fabulous Ronette. Um, you said that this was one of the like first template-setting uh, rock memoirs. This was done before people were really doing it, and it was because, so I think it was written in 89 was published, um, which is like way, I mean, that that's when I was born. But like, the, you know, people who were writing memoirs now were still just making the music at the time it's, of this being it's funny published. That, it's She's funny. OG. She is OG. It's funny that right now I feel like we're coming on a big cycle of 60s stars putting out their their like definitive memoirs. Right. You know, your Keith Richards', Keith Richards is, Bob your pa- Dylan. Paul McCartney had one semi-recently, didn't sure, he? Sure, maybe. Because I feel like those guys are now in their... Uh, <laughs> 
their, their final, twilight years. Their final stretch. And the, they're basically done. But I think it's interesting that like in the early 2000s, there was kind of a run of heavy metal guys from the 80s yeah. memoirs. Uh, and that was more of the, wow, I can't wait. I can't believe I made it through it. Yeah. And th- I mean, that's what this is. This category is the same thing is the you know rock and roll redemption after a life of well we'll talk about it but there's some fucked up shit in this <laughs> well we'll talk about it yeah all right well uh cue us up yes. where does the, the ronnie specter story begin veronica bennett is born on august 10th 1943 in spanish harlem to a white dad and a half black half cherokee mother um, so Harlem in those days was a multicultural oasis within America and within New York City. Um, Ronnie says, we saw people of every color on the street, black, white, and yellow, with eyes that slanted this way and that. Which is like an interesting way of referring to uh, like a multiracial community. Yeah, when like, you're like- Everyone's eyes were different. I also like the general concept that if you're in a underclass multiracial melting melting pot it's kind of acceptable to be generally racist in all directions as long as you know that you're also being racist against yeah and so it's funny you say that because she so she's called a half-breed at school and she's teased yeah, for being that's a half-breed nice. but she also calls herself a half-breed it's kind of, it's kind of like she's like reclaiming it in a yeah. way uh i mean that's a that's a powerful ethnic heritage well, yeah totally um, and her, so she's got this like gigantic family and her house is super musical and it's, I mean, one of the first pictures, I mean, the best thing about memoirs is the photo insets, which yes. unfortunately is like one of the only things that doesn't translate on a podcast. So sorry, but, uh, there's Once a photo of like show notes. Maybe we can link to some photos. Sure. Uh, there's a family photo and it's just like, I don't know, 18 aunts, uncles, cousins. It's just like a massive Gone are the days of multi-generational households. Yeah. And now all we have are itemized micro-families scrapping for... Wait, I thought we were done talking about (laughs) the horrors of of our current era of capitalism. We're never done, but it's, you know, it's kind of... My family wasn't, you know, we didn't like jam on the weekends. That wasn't our bag, but that's what these people did. Um, And her father is a a failed jazz drummer, (laughs) which I mean... Like what's a six? Like how many successful jazz drummers are there? Like what's the definition of jazz drummer success? Well, it, it's Harlem in the '40s, right? So there are enough places to go for live music where they like need drummers. Yeah, every weekend? just like getting paid to do it at all, yeah. even a little bit by someone who like owns an establishment. So yeah, he's not at that level, um, and he's also an alcoholic. So Ronnie uh, acknowledges that early. They went like furniture shopping once, and like we're buying a new chair, and he like fell asleep in the chair, and she had to do the whole transaction herself well that's how he knew home. that's how he knew uh which chair they were getting <laughs> it's like this is a really good one ronnie ronnie passed out ronnie's looking around in the store and then just turns around and the dad's in the chair and she's like oh that's the one i guess we'll take that one yeah like drag it drag it all the way out um uh, Ronnie says she has sang ever since she can remember. Uh, apparently, she could sing Jingle Bells when she was a baby, <laughs> like a literal baby. She was possessed by the Christmas spirit. Kind of. The ghost of Christmas carols. Like before she could read or maybe even like talk a lot, she was singing Jingle Bells, which I mean, Jingle Bells is definitely, it's a banger. But ever since she is a baby, she knows that she wants to be a singer, dancer, performer. Um, she's got, she's, she is possessed by she's the got spirit. the spirit of christmas she Carol. has the spirit of of music within her um and so 
she is constantly, you know, doing things like charging admission for concerts that she puts on at her own home. Uh, and she sings with her family, and she eventually bugs her mom until they let her sign up for a slot at amateur night at the Apollo um, with like a handful of her cousins, and I forget what they sing, but uh, they sing a couple of songs. Everyone is like shitting their pants nervous, but Ronnie just loves it. She's in her element, like she sings as hard as she can, and the she gets off stage. Hits and the world disappears. Yes. I mean, it's this, it's this very like idealistically described yeah. vision of like just being possessed by music. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's true, like it's infectious. You read it and you're just like, I get it. And like, you, I don't know, maybe you know people like that. Obviously, no one who ever became like a Ronnie Spector, but like just people who can't stop playing music and like have to play every guitar they see and like maybe those people aren't super fun at parties necessarily well i mean i've spent a lot of time hanging out with improv people so i'm certainly aware of the kind of person who is uh always on just can't stop doing the thing and that's ronnie so she eventually creates like a little trio with her sister estelle and her cousin nedra um, and so they start taking singing lessons from an Italian man named Mr. Canalucci, as you do. Yes. <laughs> and uh, then they're picked up by these, uh, three half black, half Cherokee, half Irish girls in, and I yeah. assume is teaching them. And now we sing, Oh, in the moon, it's your. <laughs> um, oh, the, yes. I'm I'm sure New York was like. Full of Mr. Cantaloupes at that time yes. on every street corner. I mean, I, I don't want to snap up a little bit of the preview, but the book that I'm reading for the next one features a a Ute growing up in the mean streets of New York in the 50s. Yes. And uh, any stereotype that you can imagine is exactly true about yeah. the streets of New York in the 40s and 50s. Their blood runs red with with Pasta marinara. Sauce. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they start singing together at these singing lessons and they're picked up by a talent agent who scouts them at their rehearsal and the talent agent starts getting them gigs at bar mitzvahs. Um, this is in spring 1961. They're all like in their mid ish teens. They're all still in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they get a record deal, uh, with a, a record label called cool picks. And so I just think this is like nuts. Excuse me. Cool picks. The, uh, cool picks. Cool picks. The, the label for presenting the music was named about after pictures. Um, I don't know what it was named after. Uh, but wasn't Cool Picks the name of that point and shoot uh, peel and paste Polaroid camera that we were talking about on the last episode? Uh huh. Cool Picks. Cool Picks. This uh, episode brought to you by Polaroid's Cool Picks. The coolest picks. Only Cool Picks for cool people. <laughs> uh, I I think it's nuts that they just like. You know, you get together and you practice and then you got a record deal. Sometimes it, when you're reading these things, it just seems like people are handing out record deals on street corners. Like, was I born days. at the wrong time? Yeah. Like, if, you know, I was in like high school musicals, if well, I, think, I just had a little more gumption, mm-hmm. could this have been me? But then I would have been born in the 60s and, you know, I was a woman and like it would have been shitty for everybody. Yeah. Mostly me. And I guess if they were scouting the high school musicals you were in, didn't you say that you were like Beauty and the Beast? Uh, town made number three hey i was uh i was one of the silly girls that fawned after gaston that i mean that's one step up from town's person number 17 you're right please respect respect the game again i think just just like with jazz drummers i think that it was much easier to just run out and start like a mom and pop record label you know just put out some neighborhood records for uh to sell on your street corner Uh uh-huh yeah yeah I mean, it, she makes it sound so easy. Uh, 
so they get together and they start recording music. And so one of the first songs that they record is called What's So Sweet About Sweet 16. Mm -hmm. Would you like to listen to this song? Yeah. Should we listen to What's So Sweet About Sweet 16? Yes. Great. It's Saturday night. The moon is so bright. Like what on a shelf? Doll on a shelf. I said a dog on a shelf. That would be awkward. Okay. How do we, how do we feel about this kind of music? I mean, it's a type, right? Like in a way, it seems like it's the kind of stuff that is on in the background when they make movies about the like Italians in New York in the sixties. Like yeah. it's playing on the jukebox and then you see like Ray yeah. Liotta or whatever. Yeah. This is first act of a Scorsese movie. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a, it's the kind of music that like was sincere at the time. And now I feel like if a director were to use this in a movie, it would be soundtracking like a shootout. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. It's like, like the this, ironic these song. kind of like saccharine songs that are used in an ironic way uh, because they're just so, Schmulzy. Yeah, it's interesting because now we we only have very distant relationship to these songs. We know these as soundtracks to movies. We know mm-hmm. them as songs that are referenced in pieces of music and media that were already old when we were kids. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to approach these with uh, any kind of sincere, open-eyed, uh, earnest appraisal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean... It's hard for me to imagine getting super into these kinds of things, but at the same time, this was the DNA that rock music was born out of. Right. And I think that the thing that most rubs off on rock music of this kind of of pop music from the 50s and early 60s Mm -hmm. is maybe the song structure. Yeah. Where, uh, you know, these are some of the very... The very format of the... this You know, this song's 245, the, like, three-minute pop song... Um, that then, you know, mixes together with kind of folk and country music and Mm -hmm. then black music from the South Mm -hmm. to kind of put together what we start to recognize as rock and roll. Uh, that's the part of this that, that is lent to that music. It's like, just make it a little like louder, a little faster. Add the backbeat. Yeah. But also that pining subject matter about being a teenager who's sad. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, that is the classic DNA of all rock music, right? People are still, I mean, like, being a sad teen continue, like, Lord, basically all of Lord's songs right now are about being a sad teen. Ronette and the Lords is like, and the Lords. And the Lords. Lord and the Lordettes. Lord and the Ronettes is like a single direct line. Yeah. It's, uh, that's actually a very, very good uh, comparison. It's the exact same subject matter, even the kind of subdued um i mean i wouldn't call lord saccharin but it's like kind of the 2016 version of saccharin like cool detached production yeah i I mean it's this kind of thing put through the irony hole 
like yeah. 40 times until <laughs> it becomes weirdly sincere again. Where is the irony hole? I want to go to there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's interesting because we, I mean, we've talked a lot about how sad pop music is. Sad and horny. Yep. Is like the pop music of the last three years. And honestly, this music is the 1960s version of It's horny and sad, but, sad and horny. but filtered through a like extremely chaste, uh, like tunnel before you get to the the sad and horny undertones so 16 year old girls whether it's 1961 or 2017 also sad and horny what's so sweet about 60, sweet 16 nothing being 16 sucks it sucked 50 years ago and it sucks now <laughs> yeah although Barely i guess drive. <laughs> i guess a few years before that it was like well you're 16 time to go to the factory yeah or you're you're 16 so you've already had two kids and then you're gonna have two more kids and then you're gonna you're gonna perish yeah i mean um, the whole idea of a teenager as a discrete age is something that emerges just a little before this time too right, right. teenagers were in- invented all um, right not not born so the runettes original teens original og teens um so they record songs like that which ronnie's like these are fine but like we want to do something that's a little more special um and they're dancing they start dancing at a club a nightclub called the peppermint lounge uh, nice. which is like they just like go and they're just like hype girls kind of Great. um like not go go dancers exactly but they just like sort of publicly dance are they but paid then, to do this n- like very little like a little bit okay. but like it seems like any amount of money is more money than you would make like you know professionally and they're still in high school so every morning they're like getting up in the morning and they're going to high school the next day oh they're and they're doing this like weeknights so yeah. they go to the club and Hit just club. be professional cute teens yep and the, i mean like not not a bad life um, and so they're like languishing at these mitzvahs and then they're, <laughs> weren't we all? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the definition, right? Um, what's so sweet about sweet 13. Uh, <laughs> and then they're discovered sort of again in Florida by a radio DJ named Murray, the K that's just oh K God. the letter because this is a time when you can be named radio like DJs of the sixties, man. Yeah. So he adds them to his, he has a review at a place called the Brooklyn Fox and Ronnie describes this as a place where you could see the top names in rock and roll from Little Stevie Wonder to The Temptations for $2.50. I like that there was a time when Stevie Wonder was Little, little Stevie, Stevie Wonder. Wonder. Yeah, well, he, I forget that he's like he's a young he's a young dude when he first mm-hmm. got famo. Yeah. Um just it's, a boy. It's crazy how Brooklyn like basically doesn't exist in pop culture until the 2000s. I mean, we've been talking about watching stuff like Friends and Sex in the City, mm-hmm. and where Brooklyn is an Bro- area like un- a non-entity. In Sex and the City, Brooklyn is treated like Mars, yeah. as in like when you say I'm moving to Brooklyn, it's like, well, congratulations on like you're basically shitting in a diaper as you go into outer space, and I'll never <laughs> see you again. Yes. Uh, whereas in actuality, it was like this great nexus of actually cool culture and the and underground stuff the stuff that would that would uh, uh burble up to become the the over culture yeah as it was discovered the i over- guess same as it ever was except for now except now for the now. whole ship's sinking <laughs> staten island is the next brooklyn yeah uh, seriously they got that great ferry um backstage at the brooklyn fox uh the mood is very jovial she says that stevie wonder jokes around with um ronnie and her sister and her cousin saying you girls sure look great in those red dresses tonight get it yep he can't he can't because he can't them. see the glasses and um how yes how many jokes about being blind do you think stevie wonder has so i bet he has so many but i bet he said i bet he used them more back then and now he's like i'm stevie wonder fuck you <laughs> i mean of course yeah how could you not 
Um, Dusty Springfield is also a performer at the Brooklyn Fox, and Ronnie doesn't really describe why she gets so stressed out, but she gets so stressed out backstage that she makes a game of just smashing plates into the hallway, and she has an assistant who she like literally sends out and is like, go buy me some more plates, and then the assistant brings the plates back and she smashes more plates. So wait, are they getting paid at this time? That sounds yes. like an expensive ha- habit. Um, yeah, th- this is Dusty who's breaking the plates. Oh, oh these girls okay, are okay. these are very innocent. They don't have any quirks or ticks. They're just there for the ride, um, mm-hmm. making making blind jokes with Stevie Wonder. Um, Dusty's the one who they never explain why. It's just a sort of a vague malaise of like being like, I'm so tired and bored. I'm just gonna she, smash plates. She breaks so that she can feel. <laughs> Probably. Only the only boy who could ever reach her was the son of a of plate a, maker. Of a smasher man. Smasher man. Um, and so it's here at the Brooklyn Fox that the Ronettes um, solidify their iconic look. So obviously, as you can see from the cover of this book, they have a Luke. Yes. Um, which is like teased I, hair. I would call it a, a mountain of hair. A mountain of hair. Um, and then I kind of always picture them as like loose floral dresses. Yeah, like dresses that are like cinched right underneath the boobs and then kind of flare out and like mm-hmm. the bell sleeves and you can sway. Or, but they also have like tight dresses too. Mm-hmm. So they have dresses that are like slid up to uh-huh. Um And it, it's because they're backstage and they're bored and they're just waiting around so they'll have contests to see who can tease their hair the highest oh and who God. can extend <laughs> how that their out. eyeliner out the furthest which That's is like amazing it's so nuts because this i mean this look like it's it is amy winehouse like yeah. that's her that's her entire aesthetic is ronnie specter or it's, rather the ronettes it's also I guess I never really thought of the Ronettes as ground zero of that look because that look is like also the go-go dancer look. Yes. Of like, if you watch Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, like uh, all the girls in that are kind of aping that look. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, if you just in your mind's eye, imagine like a go-go club in the late 60s or 70s, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. They look like the Ronettes, the I guess. The hair that you can hide something in. Like Fun a, fact. Like a if, gun or some kind of switchblade. If you want that kind of beehive, um, but you don't want to literally ruin your hair, because I don't know if you've ever experienced or like witnessed people rat combing their hair, like really teasing, teasing it back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it destroys your hair. Uh, you can hide a loofah in your hair. Amazing. And like loop your hair over it, and then it creates volume. Um, that's just a trick for everyone out there. Who Isn't that also the kind Ronnie of like look. the uh, the bump the bump it? Yeah, a oh loofah is Jersey like a bump Shore it. Thing? Yes. <sighs> Bad memories of a weird. That's time. the thing. This look is like it's like Snooky too. Yeah, it's iconic. Um, and I feel like you know they have these contests about extending their eyeliner. Who can extend their eyeliner the furthest? Like if they existed now, that would they have become YouTube beauty vloggers instead of singers? Because that's basically what they hey do. Hey guys, <laughs> it's me, Ronnie. I'm back with more tips on how. Is to Ronnie get also an ASMR vlogger? Cat eye. Yeah, except with real tinny strings, uh, <laughs> like treacly uh, wailing in the background. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. Um. Yes, so they're they're just like chilling. They're performing. Um, the, Ronnie's loving life. In 1963, um, they haven't really had a hit record yet, and they're just like over it. They're like, we want to be stars. Let's do this. So who do they? And are they? they who are they going to call? 
they're out. They're probably out of high school right about now. They're, and they're like, like just we're gonna, about out we're of We're going to go for this and yeah. be stars. Yeah. Great. Let's do it for realsies. Um, so who who are they going to call? Phil Spector, the producer of the moment. Um, right. He'd already have hits with like the crystals. And like he's just like the guy. And <laughs> they call him. They got an audition. Uh, two verses into their first song, Phil jumps up and down and says of Ronnie, that is the voice I'm looking for. So it's just like out of a fairy tale. Like, how how do you get a record deal with uh, Phil Spector? Just look him up in the phone book. <laughs> Again, this seems like something that you could just do at that time. Right. People had like listed like numbers. Yeah, right. It's so nuts. So they sing for him all that night. Like, they don't stop. And then afterwards, Phil takes them out for, you know, pastrami on rye. <laughs> Just like classic vocalist healing sandwich, the pastrami on rye. After a long night of singing, what do you want? Deli meats. Deli meats. It's you know the fat, the marbled fat coats your throat <laughs> and just adds a real smooth sound that goes well over the that Spectre production. Yes, that wall of sound. And that wall of fat. <laughs> the wall of pastrami. <laughs> Phil Spector's wall of pastrami. That sounds really <laughs> good right now. Um, so Phil signs them to his label and he immediately starts rehearsing them nonstop uh, to prepare them for recording sessions. Mm-hmm. And after rehearsal one night, he asks Ronnie if he can kiss her. So he likes Ronnie. Red flag, red flag, red Ronnie flag, red likes flag, red Phil. flag, red flag, red flag. So I think she's eight. I mean, what does it matter back in the sixties? Like what what is eighteen? You know, that's like the Dave Chappelle like monologue about like what is fifteen years old really? Like what's eighteen in the sixties? It's like definitely an adult, right? I mean that's you're you're in the zone where people are thinking when you're gonna get married. Yeah. That's the thing. Well, so, how old's Phil at this time? I mean, he looks about 40, but that doesn't mean he was 40. I think he's like 22 or 23 oh. at this point. So he's not that much older. He's like a, he's not exactly a boy genius, but he's like a young man genius. Yeah. But as you were saying, he kind of has always looked like he's 40. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, of Phil, she says he wasn't conventionally handsome, but the Rock Hudson type never impressed me anyway. I thought Phil had a great body. He had a great tush, the cutest one I'd ever seen. Uh, he he's he's like a butterface. So, <laughs> I mean, bless Ronnie for noticing a tush, but like that is not my first body part. It's like not even like my seventh body part that I notice on a dude. So like I think she was like she like looked. She gave him the elevator, and she's like, uh, uh, uh. Okay, like he's got a nice touch. Yeah, it really sounds like she's evaluating all of his parts and figure finding the one thing that she can comment positively yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, love is like it's like if blind. you go see uh, like a friend's play or something, and you have to be like, um, <laughs> the costumes were great. Yeah, the lighting in that one scene was phenom. Yeah, do you, Ronnie? Do you? Uh, Phil flies the girls out to LA, and he tells them. So they they record a bunch of like kind of starter songs, but then he tells them like, he's written their first million seller. What do you think the song is called? Uh, a mil uh, a milli. It is called. <laughs> I would like to hear that. Um, it's called. I don't know if you've heard of it. Be my baby. Oh yeah, heard of it. Heard of it. Um, I think we're all about to hear. Be of my it. be my baby. So let's listen to be my baby. I love. I would love to listen to be my baby. all about the percussion in this song the castanets yeah. Yeah. that timpani in the background do, 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 do. We'll make 
does always have a very unique sound to it. You can't deny the production of it. Mm-hmm. And they've kind of traded those lilting strings of their earlier things to the big horn section. It sounds sad, yearning, and triumphant at all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like the reason he was like, yes, this is the voice I want is because she was loud as hell. Yes. And like he, he... You can hear her almost over-modulating in the, in the microphone. Yes. You throw a real fast backbeat on that and that's a Ramon song too. But I mean, they exactly. were consci- consciously doing that, and it's no surprise that Phil Spector ends up producing for the Ramones right. down the line. Right. But uh, it is hard to describe how it feels so out of time or so from like a million years ago that kind of production. But it also is so keenly linked to the rest of the next fifty years of pop music. Right. It's just like a a rock skeleton that gets dressed up in yeah in furry capes. Yeah. Uh, it's an amazing song. Rolling Stone calls it the number 22 best song of all time. So wow, which is uh, that's a pretty that's pretty good. And those Rolling Stone, how do you judge them? I mean, I could talk about rock rock lists. Yeah, sure. Length. We can we can do a list episode. Uh, I would actually love to do a list episode. A, li- a list episode. I have a pitch for my favorite rock and roll list of all time, but we, we, we can do that later. Okay. Uh, it takes Ronnie three days to record her vocals for this song. She records each word independently, getting it perfect. Kind of. So she explains that, you know, f- the way Phil gets his famous wall of sound, uh, she explains how he gets it. If a normal producer wants one guitar, Phil wanted six. <laughs> he had just two drum sets. Right. <laughs> because one is not enough. And every literally everyone in the studio sang backup mm-hmm. just like everybody like if you were there like he wanted you in the background singing and that's why you know ronnie's so loud and it's like yeah great you fit into this whole sort of orchestra perfectly um fun fact share was on the background of that song really i feel like that's something that maybe older people might know as like a general factoid but like a teenage share was like hanging out with phil specter because she was with sonny at that time and blah 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 interesting i didn't know that share went back quite that far um yeah i didn't realize that either but like just because I feel like Cher's been on her farewell tour for like 87 years now. Yeah, that's also crazy that... And she's still wearing these unbelievable costumes. Yeah. Cher's kind of... She might have drank um, unicorn blood or whatever that like or Harry Potter a, thing a is. Peter Thiel blood, uh, blood transfusion of it the young. It is very possible. And like, I don't really support that for Peter Thiel, but I do for Cher. Cher, yeah. Because what if she's still singing, she's inching then on a 60-year career. Yeah, that's like crazy. Go Go Cher. Go Cher. Um, you do great tweets. Yeah, she does. I love shared tweets the way my mom texts, but like different. Oh well, yeah, it's like a, a, in a style in which future uh, linguists will have to piece them apart like hieroglyphs. Right. It's sort of like beat poetry or like um, like Finnegan's Wake or something. <laughs> or just the use of like punctuation. Uh, so Be My Baby is released in 1963, August 1963, immediately blows up. And what Ronnie says about making it, she says, that record is a rock and roll classic. And no matter how... <laughs> Look, I'm going to tell it to you straight. My, my first number one hit is a classic, a stone cold classic. I don't care who you are. I will not mince words name, about how name, fucking great I am. Name a more iconic song. I'll wait. <laughs> Basically. Uh... It's a rock and roll classic, and no matter how many horrible things I went through later, at least I can look back and say I made a record that's going to be around long after all of us are dead. And that's a nice feeling. Spooky, but nice. That's fucking true, though, Ronnie. Like, you just got to make one perfect thing. And yeah. then you can, like, whatever else happens, you got to... You can coast forever. Yeah, you got that that one one great thing. 
Um, we just got to record one perfect podcast. <laughs> That's what this whole project is. It's really toward, just a, toward a perfect podcast. Yeah. Is to uh, eventually get to the perfect podcast. Is the perfect podcast just one where you you just laugh constantly and then you die? <laughs> like you just cause cardiac arrest or due it's to like, laughing? It's like Newspeak where the whole goal is to condense it into one word that it perfectly <laughs> describes all emotions that you can just listen to and feel anything. Feels. <laughs> all right, I'm done. I can't drop the mic because it's in a stand. I could push it over. I'm not going Please to. Don't push it I don't want to break your equipment. Um, Anyway, Be My Baby blows up, so they're officially like rock and roll. They're on the map. Uh, the Ronettes go on a UK tour. Who do they meet? The Beatles. Oh, those lovely lads from Liverpool. Those lovely Liverpudlian lads. Oh, uh, they're probably... They hadn't broken in America yet. They hadn't broken in America yet? Mm-hmm. So but they, as we all know, Ronnie they had already first. been playing in Germany for 35 years. <laughs> 600,000 hours becoming perfect in the labs of Berlin. Mm-hmm. Right, right. They uh, ditched fucking loser Pete Best. Oh, that guy. Best, more like worst. worst. Am I right? <laughs> oh. Has the- anybody ever done that joke? I've never heard it before. I'm going to say that I did it first. All right. I, I, got, I got there that's first. That's certainly the first I'd heard it. Great. Thank you um, for validating me. John Lennon takes a shine to Ronnie um, and he asks her at a party that they're at to teach him all the latest American dances like the pony, the jerk and the nitty gritty. <laughs> these sound like fake dances. <laughs> these, these, all most things of this nature from the 60s sound like fake things from the 60s. You think he was just like, hey, Ro- hey there, Ronnie, do you think you can teach me the pony and the jerk? I've, you know I've heard them I... talking about, but I don't know. I don't know how to do it. Do you know any dances? I was thinking like <laughs> he looks out a window. There's a horse. The <laughs> pony. The pony. <laughs> he looks in the corner. There's dust. The nitty gritty. <laughs> the royal god. <laughs> the, the taxi cab. What do they do in America? The... <laughs> The Buckingham Palace, <laughs> the m- meat pie, <laughs> the Oliver Twist. <laughs> Where is this party taking place? It's at a hotel or something. Yeah. I feel like all these parties are at hotels. I'm, um, for the sake of the joke, the hotel was in the view of Buckingham Palace. Yes. Great. Yeah. Uh, they snog a little bit, but Ronnie's like, nice. This love was to snog. Love to snog. Uh, Ronnie's Phil's girl at this point. Sure. She's in love with Phil. But like, I mean, if you have the opportunity to swap a little saliva yeah. uh, with John Lennon, are you going to say no? No. Nah. Nah. Um, but more, I mean, she basically, kind of t- she turns him down to doing further uh, than just some innocent kissing. Uh, and they sort of bond over like sudden fame and all of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff uh, as as they do. Uh, those conversations that only like, you know, 700 super, people in the yeah, entire world famous. can have. Uh, the Beatles eventually bring their mania to New York in early 1964. Fun fact, it took six jumbo planes to bring all of Beato- <laughs> Beatlemania over for the first tour. They had to use a, a military submarine <laughs> to lug it over the Atlantic. Uh Early 64, so then Ronnie hangs out with them at their hotel in New York. Um, At their hotel party, there's a guy and a girl who have sex on a bed while everyone watches. Uh, Ronnie calls the experience educational (laughs) because, um, both because she didn't really know how sex worked, like she'd heard about it, but this is the first time she like saw it. You can't just like go on, you know, YouPorn or or RedTube or whatever. Or Wikipedia if you're a little more sophisticated. Oh, yeah, those beautiful Wikipedia illustrations. (laughs) I I prefer WikiHow for my. My, uh, <laughs> my sex ed, per- personally. Um, so she didn't know how sex 
like worked and then she's also sitting on john's lap while uh, watching it and uh, he gets very uh. excited <laughs> so ronnie's growing up really fast yes uh and then she I just imagine like watch it be like actually watching it live and being like uh, oh oh that's oh. literally like so that go okay but then how do they um okay oh, it's much floppier and more spastic than i thought <laughs> apparently she's wa- she's watching and she's like john has to kind of tell her to shut up because she keeps being like oh wow <laughs> like she's really she's into mystery it. science theatering the uh yes, the sex exactly um so that's nuts and then she so her relationship with phil is progressing um she loses her virginity to him to one of her own songs that he produced that old that old <laughs> that'll end up in some kind of mania one, right yeah i mean there's once again not many people can say that they've done that and i don't know if anyone really wants to it's like they're consummating the production of the song kind of i'm, sh- I'm sure that made fucking phil fucking horny as hell too oh that's it so the song <laughs> the song is called do i love you um should we listen to it yeah let's listen to phil listen- and ronnie's fuck song <laughs> gross This would still be a weird song to have sex to. Yes. Especially when your cousin and your sister are singing background. Like, they're just going, ah. <laughs> What's dope about this is, like, I feel like the idea of, like, fullness and, like, density mm-hmm. is usually now described by, like, distortion or just loudness. Yeah. But this is, like, it has that feeling with like mostly acoustic instruments which is kind of weird to experience yeah it's hard to tell it might just be the stereo version if there's even an amplified guitar on Mm -hmm. this at all it might just it kind of sounds just like acoustic strumming yeah well you can hear that this This one's getting a little more rock and rolly because you've got that backbeat Mm -hmm. on it eventually we might talk about uh perfecting sound forever Mm -hmm. which is a very interesting type of a different type of rock book about the history of recorded sound much Mm -hmm. more wonky but obviously i'm very into it but just like the idea of loudness in recording was a technology mm-hmm. chased for years that getting those sound representations loud enough yeah. was a the bleeding edge of, of music technology for years and years. And so, now you just like crank a thing. Yeah. Now you just compress the shit out, out of it. Here's these days. Yeah. Well, look, eventually we'll fucking talk about the loudness wars. But today's not the day. That's the song's loudness time. wars. Today we're just going to talk about Ronnie and Phil sitting in a bed. Doing it to a song. H-A-V-I-N-G-S-E-X. Okay, so that's like a little weird. It's a little weird. Um, She says, every two minutes and 50 seconds, Phil reached over from the bed and lifted the needle back to the beginning of the record. We must have played that song 50 times. I'm not going to do the math, but that's a lot. That's too many times. It's too many times. Um, Also, sucks that you can't put your iPod on repeat and just go at it. You got to keep flipping that record. So um, Phil starts losing his hair. (laughs) Wait, I'm just imagining uh, skipping back on the iPod after every single time. Yeah. You would seem like a psychopath. Yes, you would. I mean, honestly. It's a deal breaker. Re-skipping back. I don't know. Look, I don't know what, what, what Bone Into Music was like. In the mid 60s, I guess people probably were restarting their 45s more. Yeah. But 
it still seems silence? like a lot of hassle. Yeah. Definitely Maybe you could, a... could construct like a Rube Goldberg contraption to, you know, like pull a string that resets it a, over a series of pull. I don't know. If you're the kind of person who's good enough to do that, you're probably not having a lot of sex, though. Yeah, you're right. <sighs> anyway, Phil starts losing his hair and wearing toupees. Ronnie says it's a sign that things are about to get weird in their relationship when he never talked to her about wearing fake hair. Late at night, when he thinks Ronnie's asleep, he takes off the hair and dissolves the toupee glue with acetone, then crawls into bed. She says the smell is atrocious. Oh, God, that sounds horrifying. That would be like, I mean, talk about red flags. Like, dude, that's a a big one. I'm just like, you know, things are good. Like, he loves me. He's writing amazing songs for me. But like, sometimes it's a little little stressful when he comes into bed and he smells like nail polish remover because he just like dissolved all the glue on his head. He This is like very early supervillain behavior. Mm -hmm, Totally. Um, Phil gets more and more jealous. He screams at her when she grabs a casual hamburger hamburger with Sonny Bono. (laughs) Whomst among us. Has not a casual hamburger with Sonny Bono. Just a casual handburger with our friend Sonnard Bonham. So he's like super possessive, super freaky, and then at the same time he's married to somebody else. So that's a that's a like year in twist on their relationship. Yeah, like barely. Um, and a, an associate of Phil's is, is the one who tells Ronnie. And Ronnie, like, immediately goes and, like, vomits because she's, like, so upset. Um, But she basically says, like, I had a choice. He was the guy, like, I was in love with him. And he is the source of, like, my income and my career. Like, what am I going to do? Be like, I can't date you because we're, you're married? Like, she basically was like, just, okay. Secret wives, man. Secret wives. That is, it's also, like, so crazy that you find out a year in there's a twist. And then suddenly she's in a relationship where the guy who is, her boss who owns a contract with her, who produces her records and gives her like is the method through which she has a career mm-hmm. and is also in a relationship with. Mm-hmm. She just kind of discovers that he has all those vectors of power over mm-hmm. her uh, without really thinking about it. Um, I'm glad that we're more aware of those things now. Yes. Because I mean, I was saying red flag, red flag, red flag when the first time your record producer leans in for a kiss mm-hmm. because already you are in rough territory when the guy who is the portal to your professional career is also uh, trying to steal kisses. Right. And the idea, I feel like it's much more accepted now that, you know, consent is uh, mm-hmm. consent is dependent on like power in relationships and like if you're the person who's making the person's money like giving literally paying them and employing them that's like you're not on an equal playing field i mean does it in the book does it seem like she when she finds out about this wife is the first time that she realizes oh shit this guy has everything over me yes and so what she says is once i made it big Phil was too insecure to let me keep growing because he was terrified that I might one day outgrow him. So we tried to reverse the whole process and slow everything down so that I would stay a dependent little kid from Spanish Harlem. And I let him do it. I didn't see anything wrong with sitting back and letting my millionaire lover tend to my every whim. I didn't think I had to grow up ever. And that was my fatal mistake. So she knows now. She didn't know then, though. Yes. I mean, she was just like, yeah, this is. And also, she's coming from like a general American culture of you do get married and you let your husband provide for you. Yeah. 
So and it doesn't really And is in a very unique position where nobody in her social group has any reference to what's going on. No, she and she's the only one. I mean, like, her father's a failed musician and her mother is a stay-at-home mom. And, like, her entire family is also kind of depending on this money as well. Is there any deal with the other Ronettes right now? Like, what are, the, what are their lives like? I mean, she says that, like, he displays favoritism toward her, but is literally, like, giving her the best sandwich. Like, it's not, it's not like... Well, and, I mean, she's the star, right? She has the yeah. best voice. Um, she's the one who like gets to stand in the middle of all the you know performances yeah, yeah. but like she's it's nothing like ridiculous but she's definitely not thinking of her her sister and her cousin as much and they're also in relationships of their own are, are they like friends though yeah they're like chill doesn't right. seem to be any animosity there so in 1964 uh the british invasion makes all of the acts that Ronnie played with seem like old-fashioned relics. She said it's basically, if in 1964, it's a good year for you if you're a British rock band, and otherwise you are instantly a dinosaur, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, so they had a good year. Uh, the Ronettes had a good year. They did Walking in the Rain and Baby I Love You, um, which I guess is the response to Do I Love You? Uh, but by 1965, <laughs> um, Ronnie says they're basically already on their way out. Like Her sister and her cousin are basically losing interest. Uh, and they're, they're like uh, suddenly an oldies band. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Phil loses interest in the Ronettes musically as well. And I think that comes from, you know, him saying, well, I don't want to get Ronnie to get too big because then I'll lose her. So like, let's just keep her on a kind of musical leash. Uh, so they're still, though, big enough to be over- offered an opening slot on the Beatles tour. Um, but by now, Phil is so possessive of Ronnie that he has Estelle and Nedra go with a different lead singer and Ronnie stays home. What? <laughs> like, I don't understand. They, so he basically sends a Ronettes cover band yes. to be the Ronettes opening for the Beatles in the probably the most exposure that they would ever have. Yeah. I mean, it's like sending the Supremes out and instead of Diana Ross, it's like... Diona Rose. Yeah. Like, she kind of sings the same way. Is bizarre. Um, Ronnie stays home, uh, and then Phil moves her into a 23-room mansion in Beverly Hills, uh, and he's in, he's divorced by this this point. Uh, he installs an intercom between his study and their bedroom uh, so he can reach her whenever he wants. And he builds literal like walls around the mansion, like high walls, walling her in. So physically, this is the next step in the supervillain evolution. Absolutely. Uh, he proposes to Ronnie finally. Um, but when. Hey, I can't get you an opening spot for the Beatles, but what I can give you is eternal bounding to your creepily murder mansion building bald boyfriend. Yeah, please say yes. <laughs> How could you say no? You can't say no. You literally can't. You literally can't. Uh, a week before their wedding, Martin Luther King Jr. is murdered, um, and Phil gets super depressed. Like, well, really I mean, depressed. Honestly, good, good response. Yes, um, but Ronnie says... Sometimes I think Phil wishes he was black. Like he, she like has this like idea that he is so sensitive. I mean, like in later years, he starts wearing an Afro wig and like going to an African-American church and like bringing a gun to it and like being a super, super weirdo. But like right now she's just kind of like, dude, what, why are you identifying like so heavily with MLK? Um, But then he gets it together for their wedding day and they get married at City Hall. But they dis- he disappears later that night. Oh, 
Um, she doesn't know where he is. She, he comes back several hours later and he screams at Ronnie, you just want my money. That's it, isn't it? So he goes off on her. And so Ronnie's mom is staying in the house. Um, she has a close relationship with her mom. And so she's just like there. Chill. I mean, I guess with a 23 room mansion. She like, could be anywhere at any time. She could be all over the place. There's a whole mom wing. And so her mom comes out when he starts screaming and she pulls Ronnie into a bathroom and they lock themselves in the bathroom and he like pounds on the door for hours. Um, and then he eventually falls asleep. And that's how she spends her wedding night. Horrifying. Yeah. Like this, this guy's psycho. Hot take. Phil Spector. Bad man. Bad man. Um, I mean, this is, I guess, maybe a good time to say, I mean, we all know that like he, he, he murdered a woman. Yes. He, the, the, a court of law said he murdered a woman. I think on this unaccredited, uh, joke music podcast, we can say with fair certainty. He murdered a woman. He murdered a woman. Um, so like, I mean that he doesn't, he hasn't murdered anyone yet at this point that we know about. But that's coming down the pike. But like Phil's not a good dude. The crazy thing about Phil Spector is that if you look up his, um, Wikipedia page, it doesn't, the first like two paragraphs are just about his musical accomplishments. Yeah. The first two long, thick paragraphs are just about music. And then... Uh, it says from 2007 to 2009, Spectre was the subject of a trial and retrial for the 2003 murder of actress Lana, Lana Clarkson. So it takes you that long. If you just skimmed the first couple of paragraphs, you might, and you didn't know anything about Phil Spectre, you would never know that this happened, that he's a convicted murderer, which I think is crazy. I think that's weird. That's very strange and extremely bad. Uh, if you're a convicted murderer, that should be in the first line I of your Wikipedia. I think that should be in, your, in the first line or two. Phil Spector, um, who killed a woman, is a, a uh, legendary, yeah, legendary music, music producer. producer. And so, like, in comparison, um, O.J. Simpson, who had an extremely illustrious career as a football player, one might say, like, and he was, was the Phil Spector of football. Of. Mm. <laughs> let's yes. Let, like, let's, I mean. I don't know if you could get a better analogy between the two, although O.J. was never convicted. Well, I mean, not for, not for, um for murder uh the first line of oj simpson's wikipedia is orenthal james oj simpson nicknamed the juice nice is a former american football running back broadcaster actor and convicted armed robber and kidnapper um not convicted murderer but he his criminality they, they get it up there is in the first line i'm sure there um, are is that like a race thing maybe like phil specter is a white guy so he gets to be like the music producer first and the Look, what i'll say is phil specter wants to be a black man Put the <laughs> yeah, me like no, that's that's bad. Uh, I bet there are a whole bunch of nerds in the talk the talk page for mm-hmm. that Wikipedia article saying that it's biased. It it underplays his contributions mm-hmm. to the Western music of the latter half of the twentieth century to uh, to underscore that part of his personality. Mm-hmm. And to those nerds, I say, shut up. To those imaginary up, nerds. nerds that I put in, that I uh, straw uh, nerds, the straw nerds. Hey. So in conclusion, Phil Spector. Bad man. Bad man. Wikipedia should be edited. Yeah, if this podcast, if this podcast ever gets notable enough to have any fans, you can use it as a source to cite Phil Spector, bad man, bad in man. the Wikipedia page. Bad man. At this point, Ronnie's singing career is effectively over. Um, it's like the mid mid to late sixties, like sixty seven or no sixty past sixty eight. Uh, Phil tightens his leash. 
He buys Ronnie a car. For some reason, he lets her drive alone. Like, that's okay. Um, But he also gets a perfect inflatable replica of himself to sit in the front seat so she'll never look like she's alone. Blank stare. (laughs) And now we've gone into full-on supervillain. Full-on supervillain. Um, like he 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 brings it to her and she's like, "What is this?" And he's like, "It's so no one messes with you." And she's like, "Okay, fine." I don't. She doesn't say whether she ever uses it or not, but I assume she's probably forced to a couple times. Look, I'm just surprised he lets her have a car. Unless I'm in some kind of crazy movie, if I ever find myself buying a life-size inflatable replica of myself, mm-hmm. I will know I have made bad decisions. What what would actually be a good use for a, a life-size rep, uh, inflatable replica of yourself? I would say like... Pool st- toy? <laughs> Maybe. Doppelganger pool toy? Like I, the ultimate Instagram accessory. I was going to say like using it to scam the carpool lane in certain <laughs> highways, but that wouldn't even be a good use Is for it because it, it wouldn't be good for it to look exactly like you. You'd want it to look like a different person. That's the thing. Well, I mean, to be fair, it'd be Maybe really if, cute if you and your identical twin carpooled together every day. <laughs> that would be very cute. Aww. <laughs> Just me and my fake twin. Um, she start, uh, Ronnie starts drinking out of boredom and loneliness. Uh, not a good reason to start drinking. Mm, nope. Um, she says, I knew so little good about liquor. To start drinking. Excitement and friendliness. Excitement, friendliness, uh, New Year's Eve, weddings, uh, Donald Trump getting elected. Uh, Earth Day. Uh, uh, yeah. Labor Day. Swedish Midsummer. Swedish Midsummer's festivals. Um, just being in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's it. Yep. That's all the reasons. Um, boredom and loneliness, not great. Uh, she says, I knew so little about liquor that I bought great Manischewitz because I remembered seeing it on the table at Phil's mother's house. She gets fucked up on Manischewitz for years. Really? Years. Oh, my God. I thought I also thought that that was going to be a callback to our bar mitzvah days. No. Well, uh, um, I don't think she had it back then, but she says she hides it in her toilet tank and she drinks it after Phil goes to sleep. Wow. That is some kind of closet alcoholism. Yeah. That's um. I mean, I guess it really speaks to just her level of like non-participation in the world um, yes. or inability to participate in the world because even then I feel like it wouldn't be super hard to find out like what vodka is right yes like if you ever watched a television maybe although maybe there wasn't that much liquor she was watching well she was watching tv she like she would literally spend days watching soap operas where I assume they drank but Maybe, Maybe the, TV was different back then. TV was different. It's also just then. this horrifying, sad life where they the lights go out and then waiting for each other to go to sleep, one goes and rubs fucking nail polish remover on mm-hmm. his horrible bald head and the other goes and drinks some great Manischewitz out of the toilet. Right. My God, in this 23-room mansion, what a horrifying scene Horror we have show. pictured. Uh, Phil never hits Ronnie. Um, he only uses psychological manipulation. She says that's an important thing to make clear. But there's a time when she tries to run away from him when he's screaming at her and she falls and she sprains her ankle. Phil's trick is to convince a doctor to put a full cast on her leg, confining her to a wheelchair. This is extremely upsetting. Like, this is some next levular crazy. Um, 
and she's like she knows that's the crazy thing too is like she knows that she didn't break her leg Mm -hmm. and she knows that phil talked to this doctor like who's this doctor also it's again just like it's easy to like flag down a record deal on the street corner in the (laughs) early 60s i feel like it's easy to flag down a quack doctor yeah it's easy to convince a doctor to be it reminds me of like like um, out on the street in one of those sandwich boards just yelling at cars y'all want some quaaludes yeah basically it reminds me of uh, Mad Men when Don Draper, uh, after Betty goes to therapy, just like calls up the therapist and is like, so what'd she say this week? <sighs> Shit was different back then. Don man. Draper, also a bad man. Also a bad man. Not as bad as Phil, though. He he did some messed up stuff, but he never um, put a cast on Betty's leg to confine her to a wheelchair and keep her around the house. Yes. So Ronnie's... <laughs> Score, John Draper once, one. Phil Spector, zero. Zero. Um, Ronnie's drinking, depressed, isolated. She talks to her mom, but like she doesn't really talk. She doesn't have any friends. Like she's just in this house, um, totally uh, pent up. And somewhere along the line, she believes that what is going to save her relationship with Phil is a baby. But she can't get pregnant. They keep trying and it's not happening. And so instead, she, she looks up. I think she sees a commercial on TV like a, for adoption or something and she sees this little boy and like calls the agency and is like, I want to see this boy. Um, that boy. That boy. Got Oh shit, what up? Uh, <laughs> it's that boy. Uh, and she adopts him. His name it's is like, Dante. Again, different standards of the late 60s. Just imagining a TV commercial that's like, y'all want some kids? Come on down to Joe's Kids Bard. We got tall ones, short ones, skinny ones, fat ones, all kinds <laughs> of kids. You want this one? This kid needs a home. Take him home today. No paperwork required. and new kids. <laughs> With the like um, inflatable dancing man in front of the uh, yeah. adoption center. But it's one of those with a tiny one next to it that just says a sign on it that says take me home. Take me home. Adopt me. Inflatable adopt a, man. Adopt a kid today. The good kind of inflatable man. Yes. Um, so she sees this kid and is like, I must have him. Um, <laughs> he will and he, mine. so he's biracial. And I think that's why partially like why she feels connected to sure. him is because like she's biracial and she's like, this kid could look like Phil and my, uh, Phil's and my child. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone saw us on the street, he fits so, the casting description. So they, yes. So they adopt this boy and his name is Dante. Um, that's D O N T E with an accent, not Dante as like, in Inferno. As in but Dante what's the difference? Is in really? Yeah, Dante is in Bronte. Um, so she adopts him, and then Phil is like, "Hey, look at this thing that I made. Um, I wrote a script of how we're going to convince everyone that you carried that child yourself. It's a script." Um, what I'm looking at is complete with graphic design of a baby. Uh, and a very well-chosen, deliberate font, a pamphlet, I would call it, called Presenting the Smash Hit Production of, graphic of a baby, Dante Philip Spector. Yeah. On the other side of it, it says, bold, act one, scene, hospital, March 23rd, 1969, action, little baby born prematurely, mother fine, baby's outcome ambiguous, parents go home nervous, baby remains in hospital, my God, he's scripting drama into his fake baby's birth yeah not not the baby's fake into the fake birth of his baby yes act two scene four weeks later hospital action baby doing fine named dante philip parents thrilled but still reluctant to admit success of it can't believe it 
Is the baby going to live? Is it not? Find out in the thrilling conclusion. Act three. Scene two weeks later. Action. Baby going home with mom and pop. Baby's weight. 11 pounds. Parents believe it. Ordeal. Over. Dot, dot, dot. Happy ending. The above is a Veronica and Philip Spector production. Wow. That is he insane. Also, you know what's crazy is that, did she save that? Like, how did she? I wonder if that's like a court document. Or a recreation of some kind. Yeah. Um, anyway, again... So, like, adoption was weird that we are, we've already discussed. Like, adoption was weird this time. And it was a practice for some people to uh, adopt their kids and not tell them that they were adopted. This sure. was, like, a thing that happened back then. A lot of taboos around sex and childbirth and just general biology. Yes. Um, totally. But this is just absolutely next level batshit crazy. I mean, yeah. Phil, Phil throughout all of this is on this next level supervillain. Like, I'm going to hand you a pamphlet telling you how to... Oh, my God. And uh, what's nuts is that the care and analness that he puts into his recordings when turned on, like, when turned toward abusing his wife is the same level of meticulousness. The thing that made, like, Be My Baby so good is also what makes him so freaking frightening of, as a is, person the thing that makes me my baby so good is what makes him so bad to his baby his baby which is his kind of but phil anyway hires a governess so ronnie doesn't even get to do that much actual parenting of dante despite it, that she's not doing anything else despite the fact that she's not doing anything else she was like great i'm gonna have this baby it's gonna give me something to do it's gonna bring us together and then this like experienced governess comes in and she like does the wet nursing and the changing and the whatever so like there's no bonding moment really like kind of but not really between her and dante and certainly not between phil and dante he's almost like just isolated within the already isolated home ronnie starts drinking more and more one night she wrecks her camaro um when she's drunk uh two hippies find her and bring them to back to her house when she can't remember how she got there one says amnesia far out like, cause, Again, the just uh, melange of the late of the late sixties of just hippies roaming, roaming the streets. Just well, that's what's so nuts is that she's so like culturally isolated at this time when culture is just like thriving and like think new things are happening. And all one the of time. the smash hits of like six years earlier, right? It's it's accelerated to a degree. Like it's almost like she's become like an old person, even yeah. though she's not old yet. Um, speaking of this zeitgeist, Phil goes to London to produce the Beatles' "Let It Be." Remember those be- beautiful Bailey Beatles? Yeah, the lovable lads from Liverpool. Go the on. lovable lads from Liverpool. I would say it. Um, and so he allows Ronnie to come and allows her to record a song that George Harrison wrote. And the song is called "Try Some Buy Some." Let's listen to this song. <laughs> okay, I sense your trepidation. Yeah, <laughs> let's just, let's let the song. Speak for itself. Way back in time, someone said, Try some. I tried some. Now buy some. I bought some. Whoa, whoa, whoa. After a while, when I had tried them, denied them, I opened my eyes and I saw you. Mandolin? Like eight mandolins? All right, well, that mandolin's a little much, but otherwise, I'm, I'm kind of into this. This has like a Bond theme vibes. Yeah. So she says when she recorded this, like, it's not in the right key, like, for her voice. 
which I kind of hear a little bit, like some straining in the like topper notes. Yeah, there's just like a lot going on here. It's very like uh, like seventies maximalist, early early seventies maximalist. Yeah, it just sounds like there's a chorus sustaining one note in the background. Yeah. She's <laughs> got those O's going though. That big fat thwompy bass. Sounds like and an yeah, Italian fucking freaking Captain Corelli's mandolin yeah. just jamming <laughs> away. <laughs> she sounds fine. This song, I like this song. This is okay, but you're right. It, there's just like so many things going on here that it's hard to figure out what this song is supposed to and be. And it's, it's just not really like her aesthetic at all to me it's got kind of a little bit of like the beatles like we went to india vibe yeah remember that time where we went to india uh and she's she says like um those lyrics through my life i've seen gray sky met big fry she's like who's big fry like i don't know she basically she didn't smoke enough pot to enjoy recording this (laughs) they were on a different level they were on a different level um so ronnie finds it really confusing and like Phil basically sets her up to fail. The record flops. Uh, the B side of it is called Tandoori Chicken, which I bet is not very, even. Very exotic at the not time. Not much sure. better. Wait, can we listen to some Tandoori Chicken? Yeah, let's listen to Tandoori Chicken. And so I will say, so George Harrison actually later records Try Some, Buy Some, and it sounds like it makes more sense when George Harrison does yeah, it. D- it's a George Harrison song. It's not George a Harrison is somebody song. who has tried some and bought some. He, he has. Ronnie hasn't. Yes. If you but gotta, unless you mean Manischewitz, <laughs> in which case she has tried some, a lot of it, and she has bought some. I can't believe it's fucking Manischewitz. All right, here's some tandoori chicken. Sounds, Poor Ronnie. This sounds like this a, is so pre- mean. This sounds like an Elvis Presley song about Indian food. Yes. I mean, honestly, this sounds like something that could transition her into a, uh, a, a like a southern singing career. Yeah. Like as if somebody said, "Have you tried thinking, singing southern music?" And the producers couldn't figure out if they t- thought they were talking about the southern part of North America or the southern part of Asia. <laughs> oh God. Um, I don't know. It's kind of groovy. Well, it's kind of groovy, but I just feel like this is so unfair to Ronnie because, I mean, it's hard to remember this girl that we met at the beginning, which is like all she wanted to do was sing and perform. Like, that's her lifeblood. You're making her come to this studio full of pot and incense smoke and make her sing about tandoori Weird chicken. Weird country western songs like, that I have. That's not nice. I don't think that's very nice to Ronnie. Like, and no, it's disrespectful it's to her talent because Phil wa- does not want her to succeed. He's not letting her be great. I'm the big, my big thing right now is like, just let me be great. Yes. I don't know who said that. Oh, Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a while ago. He blogged. This is, I mean, this is a sign. In January 2009, he blogged and said, yo, why won't you let me be great? Um, blah, blah, blah. Iconic. Let me be great. So I think that might have been Kanye because 09 was like a millennium ago in internet time. Well, it's, it's like all quotes in the modern Western heritage. It's either William Shakespeare or Kanye West. Yeah. And then there's the BuzzFeed quiz to like make you decide which one it is. <laughs> um, Phil's not letting Ronnie be great. And no, like, he's not letting her do much of anything. Yeah. yeah, that is that is sad. I mean, I don't. Those recordings aren't awful. They're just like extremely misguided and not the right thing for her to be doing. Yeah. Although says, that first like, one does isn't... make me think that she could have done a great Bond theme. Oh yeah, she definitely could 
probably still could. Um, that'd be dope. But, yeah. I mean, as long as Adele is here, it's just never going to happen anymore. <laughs> <sighs> so. Will, uh, will Adele ever release an album that's just Oops All Bond themes? Is that what 25 was? I guess. No. It's like, it's like feelings Bond. It's like if <laughs> there were only like the feeling scenes. There's like two feeling scenes in every Bond movie. Yeah. The beginning and the end. Or maybe the one where Bond's love interest gets killed to make him Bond harder. Oh, yeah. Bond Bond fast, Bond furious. Ronnie goes back to California, and then she has a brief trip to a sanitarium after having an, a seizure. The seizure, is it alcohol-related? Unclear. She doesn't really say. And this is not like a continual problem that happens in her life, but she has like a seizure on the sidewalk. She has just one seizure once. Guess what? She loves the sanitarium. No, You know why? Because she can like make friends and enjoy herself outside of her dismal mansion. And Phil Spector's not there. And then Phil starts being like, you need to fix yourself and come home because like I'm bored and you're having way too much fun at the sanitarium. So he brings her home from the sanitarium and he surprises her with a gift oh no uh, two, no you don't want surprises from phil specter not no two six-year-old boys that he adopted gary and louie look what i found more kids what yes ha- i don't know how <sighs> two wait, wait, six-year-old where did he get, dudes where did he find two six-year-olds i don't know um it's becoming phil specter's wall of kids <laughs> what if he's just recruiting where he's like i don't want to pay people to sing for me anymore like i'm just gonna get like children to do it i mean that's crazy so understandably ronnie is like i don't know who these kids are. i don't know why you brought these and she did barely even raise the first kid that yeah. she had and then these are like already six-year-olds so they've already i mean like it's I, I just don't even know what to say. Yeah. It's nuts. It sounds and like so, the, the wheels are coming off a little bit. So this is basically Ronnie's last straw. Um, and she finally leaves him in 1972. So the way it happens is he they get into an argument. She, he hides her shoes, which is apparently a common practice of his to prevent her from leaving. Oh my God. And He's so she walks out barefoot. maniac. Yeah. She, she leaves literally barefoot um, with like 37 bucks or something in her pocket. 37 bucks and a bottle of Manischewitz to her name. Yeah. But she leaves, which is amazing. And they start divorce proceedings. And this is all she's like supported by her mom at this time. Like her mom is like, yeah, you did the right thing. Like, I guess she kind of let her Does figure that out. any of the Ronette's money exist for Ronnie Spector? Yes. It seems like she didn't blow it. But like, but I'm did, not did really it all sure just like go much. to Phil and he controlled it all? So, I mean, they start divorce proceedings um, and Phil's a, Phil's a nightmare. Uh, Ronnie says when oh, the court... Phil's a nightmare? Yeah, what? Uh, is that how? I thought he's been so nice up until this point. Ronnie nice, said, reasonable, predictable man. I would like to enter into evidence for the divorce proceedings of Phil and Ronnie Spector. Uh, exhibit uh, 1A inflatable replica of husband forced upon wife <laughs> exhibit b the cast he put on me to imprison me in a wheelchair um also here are these two six-year-old kids that are i twins. do not know where they came from i don't know their last like name like i don't i'm not sure where he picked these guys up <laughs> so um she says when the court ordered him to pay me 1300 dollars a month in support payments he sent the first payment in nickels dick dick move super huge asshole it's like there's a line there that's like the a lot of that first stuff is like genuinely psychotic Mm -hmm. in 
a big way that is one thing and then that is just so fucking petty yeah. in another way petty is the yeah. perfect word um he's so he's got it all the way through from grand super villainy psychosis mm-hmm. down to i'm just gonna be a fucking dick. petty bullshit yeah fuck uh, you full specter he would have bet if he like if tweeting was his thing like it would all be subtweets <laughs> phil specter never adds <laughs> never adds um but after much uh wrangling back and forth and she says like he will just like call her in the middle of the night and be like your children need you they <laughs> they get divorced the divorce is granted this is in 1974 she's free of phil but she loses custody of all three kids so the ones she wanted and the ones that she didn't really care about yeah that's she's like 30 a... years old at this point wow she's literally just 30 like she's lived an entire lifetime of abuse and she's like 30 years old all right well she's got some time ahead of her she does um, so she tries to get back in the music game. That's like the first thing she does. And she puts together a new set of Ronettes um, because her relatives no longer care about music. They're, They're like, like, Ronnie, are you still trying to do that? Like, really? And also, they've been out of the game for like over a half yeah, decade like, now, right? No, like longer, like seven, eight years. Yeah. They're like, they're not, they're not into it at all. But Girls, she, I'm putting the band get back together. We have families and jobs and i like that theoretically if you can ask anyone to do it again it would be like your blood but they're just like no no like i'm tired like i don't fit into those little skirts anymore like i have kids now i had to cut all my hair off and grow whole new hair (laughs) um so she puts together a new set of Ronettes like she has an audition and just cast the people that like can sing and look most like them. And so at this point, it's like the mid 70s. And so oldies are a thing again. Sure. Um, so they get to go to like oldies reviews um, and have a career that just way. Hanging out with Shanana. Basically. And like, you know, uh, the Shirelles and like people like that. Uh, this, but, is the, this is the first Johnny Rockets age. Yes. The OG Johnny yeah, Rockets. The... the the age of Greece. Yeah, right. The sort of retro, you know, 20, like 15 years. The things that happened 15 years ago yeah. are cool, which is why everyone's She's already chokers a, again. She's a throwback Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> um, just because she is free of Phil doesn't mean she's free of her uh, demons. Her drinking problem gets worse. Has she discovered new liquors finally? I think she has finally moved on to vodka. My God. After um, all of these years. And I think it was because she got out of the house. Imagine... Uh, nursing a drinking problem for nine years and then discovering there were new types of new harder like faster types of booze so not to like keep harping on the manischewitz but like i mean i think it's nuts um what i realize now is that her ignorance and innocence of liquor is exactly what um the kind that i had when i first started drinking which is that when you can't walk into the liquor store and pick something out for yourself. She was she deputized her like this butler basically who sort of helped her on the sly, even though he was really more under Phil's control than hers. She let she told him to like buy stuff. So she was like Martin or whatever his name was, like, give me a bottle of Manischewitz, I guess. And like when older people used to buy me booze, it was because like I didn't know. I was just like, get me vodka, like. Smirnoff, and then you go in a liquor store and you're like, oh, look at all these kinds. I guess I should figure out what I actually like to abuse. Uh, I think that's what happened with Ronnie. Like, she just didn't know. So she's just like, I guess get me Manischewitz again. It worked last time. <laughs> it took. Yeah. 
So her drinking problem is getting worse. So she's about to play a show in Vegas for Dick Clark, which is like the biggest of the big time that you can get as a like an oldies act. Yes. And continue to be so through the 90s and yes. to early 2000s. Yes. Um, but then she's about to play a show. Phil calls her and tells her he's sending hitmen out to the concert to kill her. The fucking psychopath. So that makes her get so freaked out. And then she drinks a bunch and then dick clark is like you are too drunk you can't play tonight and you're off the tour like i'm i'm saving you from yourself this is for your own good like you gotta go but does she tell dick clark that hitmen are on the way that's an like crazy thing is like i don't know if she just assumes because he's rich and powerful that you know calling the cops isn't going to help um because i mean making a threat against someone's life is theoretically uh illegal uh, look i don't have any experience don't in the try, matter I mean, so i don't know <laughs> i don't know <laughs> what to do when somebody says that they've sent hitmen after you yeah i mean to be fair i probably wouldn't react much differently than mm -hmm. ronnie did um so he's still sabotaging her even after they're apart um at this point she uh, along the way she meets david bowie after a concert um and he invites her back to an after party she does a bunch of blow with him she says it doesn't do anything for her except make her nose water which okay um and she has I'm sex not, with david bowie <laughs> sex with david bowie but who didn't in I the 70s not, i did that's uh, that is not a path that i thought was happening here that's amazing good for david bowie um good in, for her Good for her. Good for David Bowie. Um, two I'm glad legends. they made a love connection. Yeah. Uh, there's another book, which maybe we'll eventually also, do for I this. Also, I feel like Bowie would love the Ronettes, right? Yeah. And I think he's he did. Like, it, he was almost more of a fan than she. I, I think she was just like, who's this guy? And like, <laughs> She's so disconnected from things. Why is he things? so like skinny and weird and wears like weird Who are makeup? these spiders and why are they from Mars? <laughs> <laughs> what makes them from Mars? <laughs> um. Uh, Pamela DeBar, one of the like original groupies of that time, had also had sex with David Bowie, and they describe they both described him the same way of that like he has amazing skin, like amazing pale skin, and I just he's sort of like this like Translucent albino angel. newt like that's like in the hotel room, <laughs> albino newt slithering around yeah. the floor and the wall, very like ethereal sounding. Um, so that that was her Bowie encounter. So she's still trying to make it. Um, she records a duet with an act called Johnny and the Asbury Jukes called You Mean So Much to Me, and it becomes a minor hit, so she goes and tours with them. Um, the song was produced by Bruce Springsteen. Ooh. So There's that Asbury connection. Um, should we listen to You Mean So Much to Me? Yeah, let's hit it. Now you talk to me, Hell yes. Woo! This is where Ronnie belongs, man. Oh my god, I'm so into this. This is like the exact same, the exact right production that I like from this like late 70s rock anthem with those hi-hat, those crisp hi-hats and that pounding piano, those driving mm -hmm. horns. It's a, it's a bop. See, I think she's so much more alive on this than she was on Tandoori Chicken. Yeah, this song also makes sense, Tandoori Chicken doesn't make sense she just kind of sounded like oh, not stuck hats, psyched though, on just that. like so crisp this reminds me of everything from hollywood nights to that one part of pulp's cocaine socialism that i like so much uh -huh. and also just a sign of how music has changed 
over time that this sort of 70s groovy sound is becoming more of a thing. Well, it's weird that it's like kind of come around where she had to like take a detour to do weed rock in the late 60s and listen and sing these goofy George Harrison songs. Yeah. And then could kind of come back around and do just a a, a straight up horn, drums and piano Mm. uh, power pop song. So she also had what she calls a tur- it's called a turntable hit, meaning it didn't sell, but DJs loved it on sure. the radio. Um, Great. Classic. Love a turntable hit. And then this is called Say Goodbye to Hollywood, written by a Billy Joel. Oh, hell yes. Um, Billy Joel wrote this song. He, he wrote this song not think- knowing or thinking that she was going to sing it, but she wrote it. He wrote it like, I want to write a, a Ronette song. Like, I want to write a song in the style of the Ronettes. And so then someone told her through the grapevine, like, hey, Billy Joel wrote this song that, like, could be for you. And she's like, can I do it? Billy Joel keeps yelling about the Ronettes. <laughs> Make him stop. All right, well, let's hear it. Okay. Johnny's driving through the city tonight Through the lights in a hot new rental car He joins the lovers in this heavy machine It's a scene down on Sunset Boulevard. I mean, you can hear those castanets. Yep. This definitely sounds like a song that you would write for the Ronettes. She's still got this great little baby voice, kind of. Mm hmm. This is also Love such, this this is such a Billy Joel song, too. That's the thing. It's amazing that it works for her, it works for Billy, and it feels late 70s. I'm also watching a video of her. Uh, this is her on Top of the Pops in October 1977, and she's just loving being on camera. Every time the camera angle changes, her eyes are like right there locked into the camera. She's a, This is like her natural state. Yeah. In a way that not everyone, I mean, people that are famous now are not necessarily as good at performing and being in front of a camera and being on stage as her. Yeah, she's got the full thing. And she still is maintaining the look, kind of, and it still kind of works for the time. Oh, so this is the E Street band that is the backing band on this. On this Billy Joel song? Wow, this is a great little confluence. So she made a good friend in a good place, and that friend is named Bruce. Good friend to have. Yeah. A friend named Bruce. And this is 1977 that this comes out. Yeah. So uh, radio DJs love it, even if people who spend money on music, when people spent money on music, didn't like it. Um, but that's okay. So she's it's the late 70s, and she's like a, a featuring yeah, yes. artist. You know, she's, she's somebody who's guesting on a lot of hot mixtapes. Which is kind of like heartbreaking, right? Um, that like she should be a star, and she should have hit after hit after hit. In some ways, right? And like, I don't know if it's like she's a little too old or because she was like out of the scene all those years. I mean, being out of the scene certainly certainly didn't help. I think it's interesting that she came at a time when people weren't really making albums. Like mm-hmm. she she and the Renettes were at the end of the age of just like you only existed singles. as singles. Yeah. And so she never really became like a full-fledged band act or never did really a national, national tour or anything. Mm-hmm. So she never really got established, and then she kind of disappears for a decade, almost which a decade, yeah. almost disrupts it. But I would say, given what happened to her, this is like a pretty decent little second act, considering that her first act never really got 
fully formed. I mean, it's it's a testament to her drive and ambition that she is even continuing to try when her spirit, I think, could have easily just been broken by being abused for years and years and years. So I yeah. I respect her resilience, it, right? It's also kind of the the lucky break that she had that when she get was getting back into the game, this 50s, 60s throwback thing was happening mm-hmm. in so hard that these guys like Billy Joel, like Bruce Springsteen, wanted to write songs that were like the songs that they grew up on yes. and happened to have this iconic artist of that era coming out from a a forced seclusion and saying hey i want to work again with your and and you know them having the material having the motivation having the Mm -hmm. one yeah she's definitely already kind of respected as a legend look y'all you only got to write one perfect do one perfect perfect song so it's around this time that she meets her second husband so she gets married again. She still believes in love after all of these years and after Phil being just a nightmare of a person. Um, Jonathan Greenberg uh, is a stage production manager uh, who she meets backstage when she's doing one of her oldie shows. And he's a fan of hers, like a fan, like a stan maybe. Wow. Um, the first time he meets her, he's literally like, can I hug you? Because like, oh and then like hugs her and is like, oh my God. So he definitely sounds like a huge dork. Let me speak. Can I smell that massive hair? hair. Is it real? I've always wondered. (laughs) But he sounds, he sounds sweet. And like, it sounds like they have a sweet relationship and perhaps this is what she needs instead of a millionaire abusive recluse. Just someone who's like, likes her. throwing mystery children at her. And who's um, like performance adjacent. Yes. In the industry. I always love a couple that's performer, performer adjacent person. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a sweet, sweet combo. That's almost almost like a Tina Fey and her husband. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a performer in his own right, but you know, kind of more on the technical side. Or anyone who marries like a costume designer, or a stage, yeah, stage manager is <laughs> yeah. a classic one. Or yeah. even, I mean, director, director, actor gets like a little funky sometimes. But again, power differentials. So power differentials. When someone t- is telling someone else what to do, avoid those power differentials at all costs. Uh, Unless you're into that kind of thing, and then yeah, I guess lean into it. Do you? Um, <laughs> then I want a dom sub professional relationship. <laughs> Jesus. Um, uh, they, so they have this relationship that gets serious. And then Dante comes back into her life. Uh, he comes to New York I'm like from worried California. that he's a mole from Spectre. He comes back because Phil wasn't feeding him. Oh, my God. There's no more Phil detail Spectre. about that. And maybe like Ronnie just didn't want to know. But like we don't really know why that was happening. So he is sent to California but he is not he does not thrive with Ronnie. He's eleven he's like ten years old at this point. Okay. And by the time he's eleven, he literally runs away and he goes back to California. I don't think he goes back to Phil, but he might go back to like other external relatives or something. But like what a just tragic, lost, wasted relationship with this yeah. poor boy that she saw on television and then adopted. Like at one point they get into like sort of a physical altercation where he like pushes her and like she cuts her leg on a booze bottle because she's still drinking at this point. By the oh way, oh my god, um, forget for don't forget that. Ugh, it just sounds awful. So he leaves her household and Ronnie hits her. I think ultimate rock bottom at this point. Mm-hmm. So she gets wasted on cognac. So by this time she's <laughs> upgraded from Manischewitz. So so likes it sweet. Uh, gets drunk on cognac, lights a cigarette, and we all know cognac is not just um, 
uh, flammable but explosive, combustible, and she burns off all of her hair. Which I'm sure was also highly combustible. All of her hair, yes. So this is like... I'm sure that that flame took one half of one second to engulf everything within a foot of her ha- yes. of her head. And it's a miracle she doesn't hurt herself worse, but she burns it off, off, off of her hair and is like, dude, what, like, what has my life become? And so Jonathan, like she's married to Jonathan at this point, and he's basically like, you need to figure out this stuff by yourself. Like, I'm going to support you no matter what, but like, I'm not enabling this. Like, you need to get sober. So she eventually gets sober. Um, and there's not a whole lot of detail. There's not the Duff McKagan um, dojo Co- montage. <laughs> dojo montage. Willing oneself Ronnie to sober. Ronnie didn't go to the dojo. And that's okay. We all got it. Some Look, it doesn't matter if you go to a physical dojo. You have to go to the, the dojo, dojo of, of, the your, mind. of the mind. Yes. Um, and do, you know, the the jump kicks of the heart. Jump kicks of the heart. That sounds like a Bruce Springsteen album. Jump kicks of the heart. An early album, yep. not a later album. She eventually gets sober and she has two children with Jonathan Um, a little bit later in the average woman's childbirthing life. I think she's like 37 for the first kid. Both children are born at home prematurely. The first one, literally, she gives birth to the child and it lands. He lands in the toilet and she panics so thoroughly that she literally just she gives birth and then she runs away and then yells for her husband. And he comes back like a minute later and is like, where's the baby? And she's like, it's in the toilet and then she pulls him out and then like gives him cpr and then the baby's eventually fine he has to spend like two months in an incubator but like holy oh my god (laughs) shit i'm so glad for her her perfect toilet baby well you know what is so nuts about this and so the other that baby's fine she has another baby there like she has contractions she goes to the hospital she's figured it out at this point and there she's like it's like everything she does she has to learn it practically the first time and like learn it almost you know tragically the first time so she goes to the hospital for the second baby and is like i'm gonna have this baby now and they're like no no like you're just having like fake contractions like go home and like well like call us if it gets worse and she goes home and like she literally walks through the door and she has the second baby at home like Uh. what and so what i think is nuts about this is like that whole script of dante that arriving that phil specter creates where it's like baby unsure whether baby is going to be okay parents are nervous that like happens with her real kid her biological kids i don't want to say her real kids they're yes they're her all biological kids. but isn't that like weird it's like he cursed her <laughs> i mean again the the moral of the story phil specter bad man bad man witch <laughs> <laughs> sorcerer Ugh. but anyway both of her children end up healthy and um they they become a healthy happy family and she finally has her first hit in like two decades and the song is she's featured on it once again um eddie money's take me home tonight where she sings a snippet of be my baby <laughs> so like this is, she's almost like self-sampled yeah she and that's what she says she's like they, they want to sample it and if anyone is going to sing it it might as well be me because i sang that song yeah so should we listen to take me home tonight sure let's hit it because now, I mean, baby, we are in the 80s now. Ooh, boy, are we in the 80s. Mm. I wish I had the boldness to make my stage name Money. Eddie Money. Yeah. God, you can just tell with that snare sound, that super reverb. 
the tone of his singing. Oh yeah. Ah yes, it's that riff we all know and love. There we go, yeah. I'm sure the first time I listened to the song was on a radio station with the 80s, 90s, and today. Mm-hmm. Ronnie. Aw. I also never noticed that part of the song, or like I did not connect it with Ronnie. It, no. I just thought it was like background singer. Yeah. But I also didn't, I don't, maybe hadn't known about Be My Baby either. Well, you you know about Be My Baby. That song is ubiquitous enough to just be in the firmament of, of yeah. songs. But I never really pieced it together that that was a reverence to that song. Yeah. Um. So that's like a smash hit for her. And in a weird way, it is almost like she's cursed to have that one perfect song be the song that she continues to I mean like if you know mm, Calvin Harris decides he wants to do some sort of like EDM version of Be My Baby like would he still call her at 73 to sing it I mean no I feel like Calvin Harris is probably too late no he'd be like maybe Rihanna can sing it yeah Because Calvin Harris isn't, whatever. Um, <laughs> anyway. We can do drive-by bashes of Calvin Harris another time. Yeah, that's that's lazy. Uh, Ronnie ends the book. She's a happy mother of two. She still earns her living as a singer. Um, I mean, like we just saw that she has released an album last year uh, called, uh, what is it called? English Heart, which I, I don't know if that's a reference to the time she made out with John Lennon or the time she had sex with David Bowie. Or Do you think when she was sitting on John, Le- John Lennon's lap lap during that live sex show, he was like, oh, don't worry about it. This is my... It's terrible, John Lennon. What is, <laughs> what is John Lennon's voice? Oh, don't worry don't about wor- it. Don't worry about it. That's just my English heart. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> is that how your that le- works? Your Lennon's much better than mine. Thank you. Uh, should we listen to a little uh, Ronnie uh, of Ronnie's 2016 album, 2016. English Heart? got that like adult contemporary production value yeah what was the background on this this is this, this is, is like keith, a, keith keith richards wrote this song it's a, in like, like 1963 it's a rolling stones rarity gender swapped lyrics um the song is called a, i'd much rather be with the girls the but it was original version was, is i'd much I'd rather, rather be with the boys, boys. Yeah, this is like a perfectly acceptable 2016 runnet song. Her voice definitely has that quality of just like you get older, that sort of like Aretha Franklinization, elder stateswoman <laughs> quality where it's just like, it's all diaphragm. Yeah, it's still undeniably Ronnie Spector though. Yeah, just a little brassier. And I mean, yeah. honestly, she sounds great for being 72 when she recorded this. Yeah. Production's good. Good for Ronnie. Yeah. And honestly, 
ultimately, if we think of the arc of this book from where it began to where it ends, it's a it's a happy story because you know we we saw in her childhood, um, we saw in her childhood that she got in front of those lights and she just wanted to be on stage and perform, and she had a lot of obstacles, but come to the present and for at least like the last 20 years of her life, she's gotten to just sing and make a living off of it. Yeah. And that she had hits again. She didn't need Phil Spector to, yeah. to make them. And where did Phil, Phil Spector end up in jail jail where he belongs? Yeah. Jesus. So jeers to Phil Spector. <laughs> jeers, jeers to, to Ronnie. Ronnie Spector. So she ends the book, um, describing her abusive time abused time with phil as such she says there are a lot of phil specters out there but not all of them keep their wives locked up in, in 23 room mansions you can just as easily be a prisoner in a bronx tenement or a tract house in jersey it's not about being locked up in a house at all really but about being locked up in your heart and no one can put a lock on your heart but you wow. and i'd say that's true but also phil definitely did it a little bit put a lock on the mansion but like you don't have to blame yourself for be you know that yeah. was screwed up what happened to you ronnie um yeah life lessons life lessons how was this is a book uh i i enjoyed it i mean she definitely has a sort of like innocent take on everything even mm-hmm. after being going through so much and being well it seems like everything that she encountered she <laughs> encountered for the first time yeah even and, even late in life new, life new experiences and managed to like capture that vibe even knowing what was going to happen to her mm-hmm. and this is from 89 this is from 89 um and she's on the back of this book looking smoking hot that's the other thing is like she still looks great yeah she maintains her style all the way through yeah and you know what honestly I'm glad you got to bang David Bowie. Same. I mean, goals. Look, she didn't just do one perfect thing. She, she did, did two, two perfect things. And one of them was David Bowie. Yes. And she could have had John Lennon on her list too. Yeah. Um, she also dated it not not on the level of like a David Bowie or John Lennon, but she briefly dated Stephen Van Zandt from Bruce's E Street band. And, and of course uh, Sylvia Dante from The Sopranos. <laughs> oh which, my god, wonder if she cameoed on the Sopranos. That'd be a good That'd cameo. be sweet. That would be awesome. We're midway through watching The Sopranos right now. Yeah. Anyway. Don't spoil it for us. What <laughs> happens at the end? Like, what Like what happens during the finale? We're rambling a little bit. Um, <laughs> all right. So I think that about wraps it up for Ronnie Spector's Be My Baby. Baby was mine. Uh, baby was mine. What else do we do on this podcast? I want to do another segment um, now that we've brought down the time a little bit. Um, that I think will will help do a little cap where we recommend things that we've been listening to recently or, or music things that we've found fascinating. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be contemporary music. It can be something different. And I wanted to show you something that I found recently and found fascinating, uh, which is the Morabang Band, uh, North Korea's state-run K- K-pop group. Okay. <laughs> this Great. is a all-girl orchestra that is literally maybe a 20-piece pop band that plays songs for the glorification of North Korea and its glorious leader, Kim Jong-un. This is a... Perf- so not quite like teen pop music for, no. for sad teen girls? No. Not sad because not- of like their boyfriends breaking up with them. This is not for sad teens because in North Korea, no there one is, is sad. There is no sad teen. There's no sadness unless the state tells you to be sad, <laughs> and then you are very sad. Uh, I just think that this is profoundly weird music and also like kind of good. It's just very strange. And there's been all these uh, 
controversies with this band. Well, let's start playing, and and then I'll uh, I'll show you. Again, going with the theme uh, of the state, this song is called My Country is the Best. It's on this like kind of American Idol-ass set. So it's kind of like a fiddle, cello, disco melody. Oh my god. Can, can you describe what you're seeing on stage, Molly? I mean, it's a bunch of women in white, almost looking like old nurses' costumes. Swaying in unison. See, why didn't they use this as the music that they did the dance competition to in Silver Linings Playbook? So tell me that this song doesn't kind of bang. No, the song super bangs. I mean, I want to see some like bitches roller skating to this shit, but it's just like a silent audience. I like that an electric cello looks like a cello skeleton or yep. a cello tin. Yes. Oh, yeah. This one is like the sassy punk rock girl. Look at that finger just tapping doing solo. Like some like Eddie Van Halen. What? I just love that the decision was made that North Korea needs a pop band to glorify its people, but they also have to be the best at everything. So they have to do individual solos. And the only way that they can prove that they are the best is by like shredding finger tapping on electric guitar right. for the glorification of the state. I'm sorry, this, this, na- I love this. This is blowing my mind. Virtuosity in in the service of nationalism. There's something Totalitarianism. so... Yeah, there's something uh, so majestic to me about state-mandated finger-tapping electric guitar solos yeah. that I just can't get over it. Anyway, that's my that's my submission for the recommendation. The the Morumbong band. You know if if America got to that level that we wouldn't even be able to like make shit as cool as that. No. It we would, wouldn't be as good. No. Yeah. We wouldn't. All right. I'll, should I send you my recommendation? Yes. I've gotten really into Radiohead lately and it's like kind of embarrassing in a way that it's just like really now and I would argue like yeah now like now is Radiohead times man Radiohead is like the Kurt Vonnegut of like music it's just like perpetually relevant and also kind of simple and like duh and anyway I found this by accident because I'm really into the song everything in its right place and I was looking for live versions and I found this one which I think is like pretty dope you can play it it's from radiohead's 2012 performance at coachella so this is like your favorite karaoke song one of them one of my favorites and you can tell no one in this coachella audience knows what this song is (laughs) yeah they're probably like is this this like a radiohead b-side that i've never heard of this is this from like Amnesiac or something? <laughs> no, this is a an all-time great Neil Young song. They were flying all the nature silver sea to a new home in the sun. He does a great Neil Young. 
I also love that he did the third verse of the song, the one yeah. where it surprisingly turns out to be about aliens. Oops, it's aliens. Uh, you can actually, I have a, a public playlist on Spotify called Songs with a Surprise Twist Ending About Aliens. How many songs are on it? Right now it's just two, which is Come Sail Away and After the Gold Rush. Okay. But if anyone can think of others, please add to it. Great. I mean, Blink-182 Aliens Exist doesn't count because it's it's about, it's not a surprise at all. Um, Anyway. If it was called Aliens Don't Exist and in the third verse they were like, guess what aliens do. do. And you're like, ah. Okay. Um, I guess this. That's my suggesto for the week. I guess this Radiohead song is pretty okay. I think it bangs. I'm not a huge Radiohead fan. That will change. This podcast will convince you. It's just going to become your single-minded pursuit to make me interested in aliens. Every... (laughs) Yeah, guess what? RDM, interested in Radiohead. (laughs) All of my suggestions for this end segment are going to be Radiohead. Okay. All right. So thanks for listening. We'll be back in another two weeks with another deep dive into a classic music memoir. Uh, until then, you can follow us on Twitter at andintropod or send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail.com. Emails. <laughs> and our SoundCloud is at soundcloud.com slash and-intro-pod. Uh, SoundCloud. You know the drill. If you listen to podcasts, remember to... Uh, and so if you made it this far, you've listened to one podcast, podcast. at least. Not one perfect podcast yet. Uh, but remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. You should rate and review us too. That helps a lot. But please only review if you have extremely positive vibes. I only want to see posi vibes on the reviews page. Neg vibes will be dismissed. Good eng. Good eng only. Yes. Good eng in the reviews page. Please. So rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. Who rates a podcast one star? Phil Spector. Phil Spector would rate a podcast one star. He's like, this isn't stereo and it should be in mono. Also, here's an inflatable version of me. A specter is haunting our SoundCloud. The specter of Phil. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Didn't you find somebody, Phil Spector? Oh, yeah. By the way, Ronnie Spector um, on Wikipedia, it says... Uh, this is Ronnie Spector, the singer. If you want Ronnie Spector, the uh, makeup artist, go here. The visual effects person, There's right? There's a visual effects person in Ronnie Spector. Like the ghost. And that is good. Anyway, Twitter, at and intro pod. Email, andintroducingpod at gmail.com and SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash and-intro-pod. Until then, uh, I've been Chris Wade. You can follow me on Twitter at say what again. I'm Molly O'Brien. You can follow me at at miss molly mary please come yell us uh, yell at us about what we do and don't know about music we would love to hear from you uh see you next time on and intro deucing bye